Well, my subject is the place of Abraham within the theology of Genesis, to give the full title. And my brief this morning is to introduce you to Abraham, to set him within the context of Genesis, especially showing his place in the outworking of the creation purposes of God and his relationship to those earlier episodes such as the fall, the flood, and Babel. And we should be looking at God's plan for the world and its peoples as it is revealed in God's promises to him. In the process, I trust that we can go some way to putting to death the idea that the Gentile church is a parenthesis in God's purposes. Paul Williamson who's done some good work in this area, and he's in no doubt that Abram's theological significance extends far beyond the actual verses allocated to him. He is one of the most theologically significant characters in all of Scripture, end of quote. I start with a little word concerning the historicity of Abraham, as I'm introducing the whole subject of Abraham this morning. In some respects, the debates that have raged over this issue are similar to the critical evaluation of the gospel accounts of Jesus. It's like the so-called quest for a historical Jesus, where the Abraham of faith is distinguished from the Abraham of history. And it's important to stress the historicity of the Abram narratives. It was not Israel's later faith that created stories about Abraham, but it was God's dealings with Abraham that led to the faith that people like Moses and David and the prophets had in the God of Abraham. And it's the God of Abraham whom we Christians praise today. The historicity of the Genesis narratives uh, concerning Abraham and the patriarchs hit the news earlier this year, in February actually, uh, over Abraham's camels. Well, I don't want to go into all that this morning, but New York Times and the Guardian here uh, sensationalized an article in the Tel Aviv University Journal written by two of its professors which presented more evidence to demonstrate that domesticated camels did not appear in the Bible lands until after 1000 BC, well after the time of Abram of the Patriarchs. The religious correspondent for the Time magazine wrote an article under the heading The Mystery of the Bible's Phantom Camels. Tyndale House, I just leave you with this, has made available a scholarly chapter of 53 pages on camels by an expert on the subject uh, from uh, University in Marburg. And this will give you all you ever wanted to know about camels. All that the latest research does actually is confirm previous knowledge that large-scale exploitation of the single hump camel, the dromedary, started in Israel not before the 10th century BC. But that, of course, does not exclude the possibility that this camel type was being domesticated much earlier. Now then, for the Abram narratives. Um, the book of Genesis, as you see, is divided into two uneven parts from chapter 1 to chapter 11, 26, and then from chapter 11, 27, to the end of the book of Genesis. And in the first part, after the introduction, you have five sections, each headed by the Toledoth formula. These are the generations of. that take us from Adam and Eve uh, to the descendants of Shem. And the second part treats the various fathers of Israel, and again, there are five sections 
headed by the Tolodoth formula, commencing with Terah's family and ending with the sons of Israel in Egypt. Now, of course, Genesis is the first of five books associated with Moses and provides the background to the Exodus narrative and to the conquest of Canaan and was written in the first place for a newly formed nation poised on the borders of the promised land. After the Babylonian exile, the Genesis material and especially the Abrahamic covenant encouraged the returned exiles to look to the fulfillment of the promises to Abram concerning seed and land and universal blessing. Now, various attempts have been made to analyze uh, the Abram narratives into a chiastic construction. Uh, And you'll see this attempt on the screen here that I've put together, not my own by any means, but little bits and pieces added. Uh, And, of course, there are certain quite clear parallels, um, mirror imaging of the first part of the narrative. And in this uh, arrangement, you'll see the birth of Ishmael in chapter 16, and the birth of Isaac and the dismissal of Ishmael in 21 are brought more clearly to our attention. The overall shape results in an amazing piece of storytelling that is full of suspense and at the same time presents profound and significant theological statements. I particularly uh, draw your attention to four points. Um, The birth account of Ishmael appears as if this is the answer to Abram's seed problem. Uh, Chiasmus construction. All points to him. But this, of course, is the result of human wisdom, human planning. Secondly, note the matter-of-fact way the account is given of Isaac's birth in chapter 21, with more detail on the expulsion of Ishmael. The fulfillment of all the promises and the resolving of the tension that has been building up through the narratives, the earlier narratives. But the birth actually itself is certainly not hyped up. Very matter-of-fact way of presenting that. Ah, Reminds me, it's the supernatural conception that is emphasized rather than the actual birth. You might think of that with regard to the New Testament and the birth of our Saviour. Anyway, a fourth point, amid, oh, oh no, the third point, sorry, Note the many contacts that Abram has with Gentiles. Also, while the birth of Ishmael is surrounded by God's promises to Abram in 15 and 17, the birth of Isaac is surrounded by Abram's dealings with Abimelech. That's interesting, I think. And fourthly, amid the death and burial of Sarah and Abraham, you see the future lying with Isaac and his bride. Now then, we come to the nitty-gritty now, Abram's theological significance. As many commentators have indicated, God's call of Abraham in chapter 12 Verses 1 to 3, and the promises made to him mark an important turning point in the book of Genesis as well as being a significant moment in the history of the world. A new situation is brought to our attention. Firstly, through the opening paragraph, which presents Terah's family tree. And then secondly, through God's words to Abram and his response to the divine call. We look at those in turn. First, Terah's family tree in chapter 11, verses 27 to 32. In the previous section from 11, 10 to 26, 
That gives us the genealogy of Shem's family line. And you will notice that it's a linear genealogy. It deals only with the elect line, unlike the segmented uh, genealogy of chapter 10, where we are given details of the descendants of all three of Noah's sons. We are taken then in a straight line from Shem to Terah. And when that point is reached, in verse 26, Moses begins a new section with the heading, These are the Generations of Terah, and repeats the information of the previous verse, 26, announcing again that Terah had fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And this is followed in verses 27 to 31 with important details concerning the family, of course, which will be of future help to us. The paragraph closes by stating the age and death of Terah in chapter 11, verse 32. Now, the repeated information about Terah and his three sons at the beginning of the new section alerts us to the previous significant figure who had three sons. In chapter 5, verses 1 to 31, the genealogy of Adam takes us in a direct line from Adam to Noah, who had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In this respect, Terah is like Noah. The stress on Terah and his three sons, as in the case of Noah and his three sons, is the first indication that we have reached an important turning point in God's purposes. With Noah, he's depicted like a new Adam, where he and his three sons, along with their wives, survived the flood to repopulate the earth. Following the separation of the nations after the flood, 10.32, a new phase in God's purposes begins with Terah and his family. But then there's an unexpected twist. It's not Terah, but his son Abraham, who takes center stage and becomes like a new Adam or a second Noah. And the two linear genealogies in chapter 5 and chapter 11 help to focus on Abraham. There are ten generations from Adam to Noah and ten from Shem to Abram, making twenty names altogether in the Masoretic text from Adam to Abraham. That the two genealogies should be considered together, taking the two, five, and eleven together, is suggested by the ordering of the names. Interestingly, you see, godly Enoch, as we know, is the seventh from Adam. And Eber, the ancestor of the Hebrews, is the fourteenth from Adam, while Abraham is the seventh from Eber. On this reckoning, then, you see that Adam and Enoch and Eber and Abraham stand out. But on the other hand, the ten generations in each list mark out Adam, Noah, Abraham. So, however, however you look at the genealogies, Adam's, Ad, uh, um, Abraham is a crucial figure. All eyes are on Abraham. Watch this space, it's trying to tell us, I think. As with Abraham, that God begins to undo all the damaging effects of human and satanic rebellion. The genealogy of Shem also acts like a bridge passage, of course, connecting the sons of Noah and the Babel incident to the Abrahamic material. In 926, we are told that Yahweh identifies himself with Shem. Worship Yahweh, the God of Shem. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem. The creator God, Yahweh, whose name is later associated so closely with Israel's redemption from Egyptian bondage, is the God of Shem. And Shem's line is the elect line that is blessed by Yahweh. The first reference to God, then, in the new section, starting in 1127, is when Yahweh, the God of Shem, speaks to Abraham in chapter 12, verse 1. Noah's prophecy uh, in 9:25 to 27, then implies 
that others are to be blessed in association with Shem. God will enlarge Japheth and he will dwell in the tents of Shem, 9.27. Reference is made also to the curse on Canaan, of course, in 9.25. And both blessing and cursing appear in God's initial word to Abraham, who enters into the land of the Canaanites. Interestingly, the concluding fragment of Terah's genealogy in verse 32 does not follow, as we might expect, the pattern of Shem's genealogy in verses 10 to 26, where we are told how long each person lived after fathering the elect son and how they had other children. In the Shem genealogy, the stress is on life and productivity. On the other hand, the peace on terror in verse 32 is more like the linear genealogy of chapter 5, where the formula gives the age and death of each person, all that is apart from Enoch. That same type of formula is also continued in the case of Noah at the end of chapter 9. All the days of Noah were 950, and he died. The overall emphasis in chapter 5 through to 929 is on the reign of death. And he died, and he died, is the continual refrain in chapter 5. And we're again reminded of this at the end of chapter 11. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died. So we find, while the linear genealogy of Shem's line in chapter 10, uh, chapter 11, 10 to 26, emphasizes life and productivity with no mention of death, in the case of Terah we return to the stress on death. In fact, the whole piece on terror emphasizes death, lack of fruitfulness, and failure. First, we're informed that Terah's son, Haran, died in Ur, in the land of his birth, and in the presence of his father. Then we are told that Abram and Naah are married, but that Sarah, Abram's wife, was barren. And to emphasize the point, we have the added comment, she had no child in 11.30. While the dead son, Haran, had obviously married and had three children, Abram had no children. The account then tells of Terah leaving Ur, intending to enter the land of Canaan, but instead he settled in Haran and died in Haran. Terah actually lived in Haran for another 60 years, actually, after Abram left home. So it would seem that it was a deliberate move on Moses' part to mention Terah's death at this point. There is some stress on the fact that both Ur and Haran are associated with death. 28, verse 28, verse 32. The elect line of Shem ends with terror on this sad note. Barrenness, failed intentions, and death. That is the generally depressing picture that faces us in the first paragraph of this new section from chapter 11, verse 27 to verse 32. Yet, into this situation, God enters to change things now. It is directly after announcing Terah's death at 11.32 that Yahweh speaks to Abram with the result that he takes his barren wife Sarah, his nephew Lot and all their possessions and they set out for Canaan and this time as the text emphasizes they came into the land of Canaan. Chapter 12 verse 5 something that Terah and his family had failed to do. From the way the narrative is written, we're encouraged to believe that the future doesn't lie in Mesopotamia, but in Canaan. 
and that the life enjoyed by Enoch and to which the Shem genealogy hints is to be found in all that Canaan represents. A new phase in human history is beginning, one that is not according to human planning. Terah's failure in moving to Canaan did not frustrate God's plans. Life and hope lie with God alone and what he will do through Abraham and his seed in the land of Canaan. This new beginning with Abraham, as has been hinted at already, is viewed against a universal, a cosmic background. Both the headings, these are the generations of, and the linear genealogies in chapter 5 and 11, link Abraham very closely with the creator God who went on to judge Adam and Eve and Cain, the people of Noah's day, and those who built Babel. And in the Abraham narratives that uh, follow, we see how Yahweh God as creator and judge is acknowledged by Abraham first in his meeting with the king of Salem when he confesses with Melchizedek that God most high is the maker of heaven and earth in chapter 14, verse 19 and 22. And then later, as God's friend, he's told of Sodom's impending doom. And Abram makes that great prayer of intercession and confesses that Yahweh is the judge of all the earth. 18.25 At the same time, the tracing of Abram's ancestry back to Adam also draws attention to God's gracious purposes for the human race. Up to this point in chapter 12, there have been three cosmic events involving human rebellion and divine judgment, the initial rebellion in Edom, the universal wickedness that led to the flood, and the Tower of Babel incident that resulted in the confusion of languages and separation. After the first two judgments, God's grace is also witnessed. In the first case, in the announcement in, John, in Genesis 3.15, as God declares war on the snake, in the second case, promises are made to Noah and the whole of creation, as well as the prophetic statement of God's commitment to Shem. But no divine gracious note is heard after the Babel incident. Instead, by means of Shem's genealogy, we quickly brought to what Terah produced and to the call of Abraham. And this suggests that the divine word to Abraham is the missing statement of God's continuing gracious dealings with humanity. In fact, the final element in God's promises to Abram in chapter 12, verse 3, that all families of the earth, the ground, shall be blessed, is the response to the families of the sons of Noah that were separated on the earth after the flood. Genesis 10:32. I come now... This leads us on now to look more closely at the call of Abraham and the promises God made. These verses, chapter 12, 1 to 9, confirm the conviction that Abraham's call marks an important development in the book of Genesis and in the history of salvation and underlines many of the points that we've already made. With Abraham, we not only have a new start, but a significant moment in redemptive History. The promises to Abram about land, seed, and blessing reverses the curses of Eden and Babel. So we look at the actual call and then at the promises. And first we hear God's commanding voice followed by an immediate response. And Yahweh said to Abram, go, and he went. Verse 1, verse 4. There's no justification for the translation Yahweh has, had said to Abram. This is a fresh word to him in Haran. And it brings to mind the creator God's initial word. And God said, let there be light and there was light in, John, in chapter 1, verse 3. Light shone as a result of God's commanding voice. Likewise, Abram went as a result of God's very emphatic personal demand, go. He was to take the initiative and go by himself. He was to leave his present Mesopotamian land, of the Chaldees, where he was born, and Haran, where he came to settle with his relatives, 
places associated, of course, with the moon worship. And he was to head for the land that God had would show him. Not only that, he was to leave his relatives and also his immediate family. There was to be a very clear separation from his social, cultural and religious past. Although Abram belonged to one of the families of the sons of Noor and of the nations separated on the earth, he is now called out to begin, to, to begin something new, a new family of nations, from a separation at Babel that resulted from human sin and divine judgment. We have this call to separate from nations and families of the earth in order that God's gracious purposes for the world might be carried forward. The later separation laws that distinguished Israel from the rest of humanity as a holy people set apart for God are here anticipated in Abram's break with the first 75 years of his life. And so Abram makes this clean break with his past life and begins a new life with God. It was, as one commentator puts it, like a new creation, to quote Paul, where all things are passed away and all things become new. By God's word of truth, to use the words of James, Abram was brought to this new start in order that he might be a kind of first fruits of God's creation. So that's the call. Now the promises. With the command come very rich and amazing promises that are later confirmed in a special covenant ceremony in chapter 15 with the sign and seal of the covenant recorded in chapter 17. But right from the start, it's clear that God did not come to Abram with proposals that if he decided to leave home, God would bless him. This is a summons, as Palmer Robinson says, a solemn charge. And we note that Abram trusted God and obeyed the summons so that further promises were given him, promises that underlined and expanded those initial pledges. Despite failures, despite imperfections, Abram continued to trust God and like Enoch to live his life in the presence of God. He walked about before God. The promises that God makes as we have already suggested, allude to earlier events and take up themes that have been introduced in the first 11 chapters. Another indication that with Abram we reach a significant milestone in God's saving purposes. We also find these promises and themes cropping up again and again in the Abram narratives that follow, as well as in the accounts of the other fathers of Israel recorded in Genesis. What does need to be emphasized is that these divine promises concern not only ethnic Israel, they find their ultimate realization in Messiah's international community that will inherit the new creation. It will become more and more evident how the notion of the church age being a kind of parenthesis in God's purposes is so foreign to what is depicted here in Genesis. And I draw your attention to four items in these promises. First, blessing. Blessing is one of the uniting themes, of course, running throughout Genesis from beginning to end. And we find the verb or noun appearing five times in God's initial words to Abraham. And this fivefold reference to blessing is a reminder of the five occurrences of the term in the previous chapters where we find it used in relation to the original creation and the new situation after the flood. The opposite of blessing, of course, is cursing. And it's interesting that as the terms for bless are found five times in Genesis 1 to 11, so the verb cursed is used five times over the, those same chapters, twice in relation to the ground, and once each concerning the snake, Cain, and Canaan. Curse, however, 
is also implied in the death sentence on Adam and Eve and the accompanying pains and sorrows associated with childbirth as well as in the later destruction caused by the flood and the forced scattering of peoples that followed the building of the Tower of Babel. So a breath of fresh air now blows as God announces these blessings to Abram that are that are to benefit the whole world of lost humanity. Basic to what God means by blessing in Genesis is that statement, be fruitful and multiply and fill, that we find in chapter 1 of Genesis. This was God's intention for all living creatures in the sea and air, as well as for humans. And the same statement of blessing was given to Noah and his sons after the flood. It's the first two parts of that blessing that we hear a number of times in the rest of the book of Genesis. Two particular matters stand out here. Firstly, these associations with the creation blessings certainly suggest that with Abraham, God has a cosmic purpose in mind. Abram is given gracious promises whereby those creation blessings are to be mediated through Abram to the whole world. Secondly, instead of the original mandate, be fruitful and multiply, a mandate renewed after the flood, fruitfulness now becomes a gift from God. This is very important. This a very significant difference. In place of a command, we have a very emphatic promise. I will make. I will bless. You shall be. I will greatly multiply your seed. It's not the result of human will and effort, but of divine grace and power. The Genesis narrative will indicate many occasions when the promise was in jeopardy, thwarted, for instance, by barrenness, endangered by the folly and weakness of Abram in Egypt and among the Philistines, and threatened first by Ishmael's hostility to Isaac, and then in the mysterious call to sacrifice the unique beloved son. Yet the promise wins through. And it continues despite many setbacks and threats during the course of Israel's history from slavery in Egypt to exile in Babylon and on through the intertestamental period to the coming of Messiah and the worldwide family of Abraham belonging to Messiah Jesus. These promised blessings concerning fruitfulness are heightened by the use of the word translated great. This overused English adjective does in this context really mean something on a massive scale. Great nation, great name. And this is confirmed later after Abram's severe test in the words, chapter 22, 17, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed. And so his seed will be as the dust of the earth, as the stars of heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore. If great nation includes having a large population, then this is certainly what Abram is promised, a limitless number. What about a large multinational population? Is this anticipated in Genesis, or is this an interruption in God's purposes, a parenthesis during the church age. The first clear indication that Abram's family will be multinational is in Genesis 17. Interestingly, this passage comes immediately after God's promise to Hagar when she had given birth to Ishmael, Abram's firstborn son. To her, 16.10, I will greatly multiply your seed so that it will not be counted for multitude. But Abram, in 17, chapter 17, is now informed that God's promise to multiply him exceedingly will be not through Hagar and her son Ishmael, but through Sarah. 
and that she will give rise to nations. Chapter 17, verse 16. Uh, sorry, uh, 17, verse 2. The words to Sarah is a little later echo, a little later echo those to Abraham in 17.16. You will be the father of many nations. So he's going to give, Sarah is going to give rise to nations. And you, Abraham, will be the father of many nations. And the change of name was a sign to him of God's intention. While God confirms that Ishmael will be exceedingly fruitful, become a great nation, this promise is to be distinguished from the many nations promised to Abram through Isaac. Genesis 17 clearly distinguishes between a great nation descended from Ishmael and the nations promised to Abram and Sarah through Isaac. The question then is, what way, in what way? is the promise of many nations related, if at all, to the promise of a great nation to Abraham in chapter 12. Many commentators have assumed that it speaks of various nations that owe their natural roots to Abram and Sarah. But Dumbrell and Desi Alexander find this interpretation unsatisfactory and Paul Williamson rejects it. For not only is Ishmael excluded, but subsequently Esau is also outside the line of promise. When the text speaks of Abram as the father of a multitude of nations, the Hebrew construction suggests a non-physical sense of fatherhood is meant here. It's similar to Joseph's statement that God had made him for a father to Pharaoh in Genesis 45 verse 8. If a metaphorical meaning is attached to father here, then the nations that are to arise from Abram and Sarah can be viewed in a non-physical sense. And supporting this view is the latter part of Genesis chapter 17. The way Abram is depicted as a father figure to all those in his household who were identified with the covenant through circumcision, whether actually born to him or not, whether born in his household or brought, bought with money from a foreigner. And the name change to Abraham, father of many, as Desmond Alexander comments, underlined the importance of the fact that he was destined to be father of many nations. I quote him, this occurs not because these nations are Abram's natural descendants, but because he is for them the channel of divine blessing, just as Joseph, as father to Pharaoh, became a means of blessing. Paul's use of this passage to claim that Abraham is the father of all believers who are justified by faith is not an example of special pleading then, or rabbinical gymnastics. Here we have the climax, the goal of the promises made to Abraham. Understood in this way, says Paul Williamson, the multitude of nations spoken of in chapter 17 does not simply foreshadow, but actually anticipates Abram's spiritual seed, which, as we see from the New Testament, consists of an international covenant community of faith. Now, this does not in any way diminish the importance of Abraham's physical descendants. The covenant promise concerning many nations will result from one family. In Isaac shall your seed be called. Isaac's special status in fulfilling the divine promises to Abraham is stressed at the very time that Abraham is concerned about his son Ishmael. All attention is on Isaac, the unique son of Abraham. And through him and his seed, God will fulfill the Abrahamic promises. It's for this reason that 
Leo's family tree is mentioned. You go back here to the narrative. A and A1 at the top there, carefully mirroring, mirroring the uh, family tree of Tira, mirroring the uh, beginning of the Abram narrative. Uh, and the uh, Neos family tree is there to introduce us, of course, to Rebecca, the one grandchild of Abram's brother Nehor to be mentioned, who is to become Isaac's wife. The long account of the servant's mission in obtaining the hand of Rebekah for Isaac dominates the conclusion of the Abram narrative. And attention is specially drawn to it by its place between the account of Sarah's and Abram's death and burial. The special family line continues as Rebekah is brought into Sarah's tent, 2467. Though Isaac and Rebekah then have twins and God makes mention of two nations and two peoples which might suggest a physical rather than a metaphorical fulfillment of Genesis 17 it becomes clear later that the Edomite nation descended from Edom, Esau is not of the chosen line. Jacob is sole inheritor of the special Abrahamic covenant promises. Later, when God blesses Jacob in 3511, there are echoes of Isaac's blessing when he sent Jacob away to his mother's family. These echoes are significant. Whereas Isaac states that Jacob will become a company of peoples in 28.3, God states that a nation, as well as a company of nations, will come from him, 35.11. Some scholars like Hamilton see company of, company of nations as qualifying nation. Translating it, a nation, that is, a company of nations. But others like Alexander see a deliberate distinction being drawn between the one special nation directly descended from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and the many nations that are not related in a physical sense, but who are closely associated with a chosen family. And this is similar to what we saw earlier of the many nations that have Abraham as their metaphorical father. Noah's prophecy concerning the relationship between Japheth and Shem has already prepared for this understanding. It states, may God enlarge Japheth, that he, Japheth, may dwell in the tents of Shem, 9.27. There are many passages in other parts of the Old Testament that speak of Israel being enlarged to encompass the Gentile nation. See Isaiah 54, 1-3, for instance. And all this prepares us for the realization of these promises in the global community of faith that incorporates both Israel and the nations united to Jesus the Messiah, who is of the seed of Abraham according to the flesh. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, also important there. But also Paul is perfectly in line with the Genesis text when he writes to the Gentile believers in the Galatian churches, if you belong to Messiah, then you are Abram's seed. And prior to the cross and Paul's mission to the Gentiles, both John the Baptist and Jesus make statements that indicate that mere physical descent from Abram is not vital. God's able to raise up children from the stones. One can be Abram's natural descendants and belong to the family of the snake, says Jesus. Jesus speaks of the many coming from the east and the west and the north and the south to sit at the table with Abram, Isaac and Jacob in God's kingdom, while the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. But for Abram to become a great nation and for his name to become great, not only must he be blessed with fruitfulness, two other ingredients are essential and they are mentioned in God's initial word to Abraham. Land and universal recognition. So, blessing first, land second. This theme receives some considerable attention in the Abram narratives. And again, 
it must be considered against the background of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Adam and Eve were placed by God in a special area, the Garden of Eden, associated with life and a close relationship with God. But they disobeyed God. They were expelled. God now calls Abram to leave his own land for a land that God will show him. From land associated with death to a land of promise, of hope, of life with God. Abram obeyed. And the spiritual blessing that Adam and Eve lost through disobedience, Abram gained, for he had a close relationship with God, walked about with God like Enoch and Noah before the flood, so that he became known later as God's friend. These are little indications that God is to reverse the curses of Eden. The land, of course, is later described in ways that resemble Eden, In Moses' encounter with the God of Abram of the burning bush, the land is referred to in glowing terms as good and spacious and flowing with milk and honey. And the prophets often depict the land of Canaan uh, as being like the Garden of Eden. Lot, of course, chose part, uh, part of the land on the east of Canaan that looked like the Garden of Yahweh, but, of course, that was ripe for immediate destruction. But the land was a promise to be given to Abram's seed, remember, not to him personally. It's spelled out first in 12.7, to your seed I will give this land. And this is repeated and developed as the narrative proceeds. And the same promise is made to Isaac and then to Jacob. And again, it's their descendants who will be the beneficiaries. As for the patriarchs themselves, well, they remained strangers, resident aliens. Abram had, in fact, been specifically told by God that it would be after many generations his family would occupy the land. And the end of Genesis provides the first step in the implementation of that uh, prophetic word in chapter 15. And that reminds us that for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... Personally, the land proved a mixed blessing, really. No sooner had Abraham walked walked the length and breadth of the future inheritance than he was forced to move to Egypt on account of severe famine in the land. And Genesis ends with the chosen descendants of Abraham in Egypt for the very same reason. Then when Israel was delivered from Egyptian bondage and God's covenant at Sinai was established with them where they were brought to the land of promise after a 40 year delay because of their unbelief. They were given the land at a time when the inhabitants of Canaan were ripe for punishment and Israel of course was used as an instrument of their destruction in the same way as much later Assyria and Babylon were used by God to remove Israel from the land. And this removal of Israel from the land was, of course, written into the Sinai covenant as the final curse, and it recapitulated Adam and Eve's expulsion from Edom. A return already hinted in the Mosaic law is expressed more fully by the prophets and is likened to an Eden restored. Details of the actual territory allotted to Israel vary. And this is interesting. The table of nations in chapter 10 gives special attention to Canaan and his descendants and the borders of their land and provides important background to the uh, Abram narrative. The borders of Canaan in chapter 10, 15 to 19 are defined as from Sidon in the north to Gerar in the south and then east as far as the cities of the plain. And they match the area originally occupied by Israel west of the Jordan, often referred to roughly as extending from Dan to Beersheba. Abram, however, was promised a massive area that stretched from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates in chapter 15, verse 18. The river of Egypt is interesting rather than the brook of Egypt or the wadi of Egypt. And so the river of Egypt suggests the Nile that is in mind. Numbers 35, 2 to 12 describes boundaries uh, that are referred to in ancient Eastern texts, 
but which are again much larger than Israel actually occupied even in the David Solomon era. Such boundary markers suggest that the promised land is symbolic of something much bigger. From the river of Egypt, as far as the river of Euphrates, takes in the great centers of civilization known to the patriarchs and Israel at the time. We're reminded of Psalm 72, verse 8, where Messiah's rule is first said to be from sea to sea, a phrase that echoes the words of Exodus 23, from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines. But in the same breath, Messiah's rule is also said to be from the river to the ends of the earth, indicating that the Canaan promised is symbolic of something much grander. And the David-Solomon era itself could only anticipate in a shadowy way the full wonder of the Abrahamic promises. The promised land comes to symbolize not only a lost garden in Eden, but a future where the ends of the earth will be the Messiah's possession to become like the garden of the Lord. Again, in Psalm 2, verse 8, the inheritance promised to Abram reads, Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. The post-exilic prophet Zechariah speaks of Messiah's dominion as from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth in Zechariah 9, verse 10. And it's significant the New Testament seems to ignore, doesn't it, the promise of possessing the actual land of Canaan. We don't get any references to that in the New Testament. The land is the place where Jesus fulfills his ministry and from where the good news goes out to the ends of the earth. It's the global aspect that dominates the thinking of the New Testament. For Jesus, quoting Psalm 37:11, the people of God, the people of Messiah are the meek who will inherit the earth. In a similar vein, Paul, uh, as other Jewish writers of the time had taught, indicates that the land promise was a sign of something far greater, that Abram's seed or family would inherit the whole world. To quote Williamson, the promise of physical territory encompasses both the historical inheritance, the land of Canaan, and the eschatological inheritance, the new earth. Uh, From Euphrates to the Nile, symbolic of the whole earth. Uh, The remarkable account of Nineveh's repentance to me, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, anticipates the day that Isaiah mentions in Isaiah chapter 19, which speaks of Egypt and Assyria. Nile, Euphrates, will be one with Israel. Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands. I must go on. Sorry, I'm going to, to apologize. I, I, did, I didn't start... Uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> I, 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 it's not so long now. Uh, third point. Universal recognition. Not only will the Abrahamic nations be great, But Abram himself will be made great. Yahweh will make his name great. Two points to consider here. First, the term name, Shem, 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 in Hebrew, picks up a couple of references in the immediately preceding sections. The builders of Babel wanted to make a name for themselves. And Abram's ancestor, who headed up the chosen line after Noah is actually called Shem, Shem. A great name in this context means a famous name. Cain built a city. Contrary to Yahweh's will, named it out of his son's fame, influence. We've got uh, men of fame in antiquity before the flood and afterwards in chapter 6 verse 4. Warriors like Nimrod who were mighty in the earth. His fame, influential in uh, forming cities like Babel. But it's God alone in the Old Testament who makes a name for himself. And he alone can bestow greatness on a person. 
to counter human arrogance, to counter human selfish ambition, God promises to make famous a person of his own choice. The fame will be a divine gift, not the result of human achievement, so that the glory will go to the creator God who is worthy to be celebrated. Malachi chapter 1 verse 11 chastises the people profaning God's name. And it's emphasized very strongly that from the rising of the sun even to the setting, Yahweh's name will be great among the nations. That's the first point under this. Secondly, this reference to Abram's name being great also picks up another important theme that runs through Genesis. It's the royal theme. And it is first introduced with the creation of humans, of course. They are given royal status as God's representatives on earth and entrusted with power and authority to exercise dominion over the creatures. Human beings, male and female, were created in God's image to rule over the earth of living creatures. 1, chapter 1, verse 26. And in the blessing that followed, humans are given the mandate to rule over God's creatures. Chapter 1, verse 28. At the point where Adam and Eve failed in their God-given mandate, the promise is made of a royal figure who will defeat the snake. And it is this royal theme, royal seed theme, associated with Abram's family line that we find developed as we make our way through Genesis. And Desmond Alexander has made this a special study and he highlights the distinction between Abram's many descendants and an individual conquering seed, as in Genesis 22, verses 17 and 18, through whom all nations will be blessed. And it's through Isaac and the line of promise that this special descendant will come. Echoes of royal ideology can be heard, as uh, Rubrich has argued in the promises made to Abram in chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Ancient Near Eastern monarchs desired for themselves the kind of honor depicted here, such as being successful, being famous, and being respected by other groups. Later we learn that Abram is promised that kings will come from him, chapter 17, verse 6 and that Sarah will be the mother of kings, chapter 17, verse 16. The same promise is made to Jacob, that kings will come from him, 35, 11. In his own lifetime, Abram did, of course, to a measure become famous. And though he's never called a king, he is certainly depicted as possessing royal status. Abram was no small-time nomadic shepherd, but a man of very rich in livestock, silver and gold, who with Sarah, his wife, is in a position to be noticed by the Egyptians and to be presented at Pharaoh's court. And despite having deceived Pharaoh, both he and Sarah are not killed, although they send packing. Abram has men he can muster to gain a notable victory over four kings of the east, one of whom has the grand title of king of nations. Would you believe it? 14 verses 1 and 9. The king of Sodom and Melchizedek, king of Salem, come out to greet him and they recognize his greatness. Abimelech, the king of Gerar, treats Abram with respect despite Abram's deception and later the king makes treaties with him in chapter 21. We also read of the sons of Heth, describing Abram as a mighty prince among them in chapter 23, verse 6. Abram's servant was in no doubt that his master had already become great, in that the Lord had greatly blessed him in terms of wealth, and had miraculously given him a son through Sarah, chapter 24, 35, and 36. Abram's greatness foreshadows, of course, the greatness associated with the David Solomon era. God made David's name great to Samuel 7, 9. But he and Solomon become symbolic, of course, of someone even greater. 
as the Messianic, Messianic Psalm 72 indicates. And the wording of verse 17 of Psalm 72 echoes God's words to Abram. May his name endure forever. May his name continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. May all nations call him blessed. Mary was informed that her son Jesus would be great. And the Magi from the east worship him and bring gifts, while Jesus could say of himself, a greater than Solomon is here. He is the one who has triumphed over the old snake and the devil, described in Revelation as the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is also the lamb slain to be acknowledged as king of kings and lord of lords. You'll forgive me for coming to the New Testament. I can't help it. Fourth point, uh, global blessing. This is the last point, Mr. Chairman. You'll be glad to know. The final promise builds on the previous ones concerning greatness, success, and blessing to others. And it brings God's word to Abram to a triumphant, universal conclusion. And in you, all the families of the ground will be blessed. This promise is repeated when God informs Abram of his intentions to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 18, verse 18. And again, after Abram's test of faith, where it's uh, extended to his seed, in your seed, verse 18 of chapter 22, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. With Abram, there is not only a new start, but through Abram and his seed, God pledges to undo Adam's sin and its consequences. It speaks, in other words, of redemption from the curses of Eden. It would suggest that the families that feel the toil and sorrow leading to death from a cursed ground are to know rest and comfort, something that Lamech hoped from his son Noah. And the nations of the earth that have experienced separation and division as a result of Babel are to prosper under God's protection. Such blessings that overturn the effects of the fall are hardly witnessed, of course, in Abram's day. In only three possible cases does he show some public-spirited concern for the wider world. But by the time Uh, By the end of Genesis, it's only Abram's descendant Joseph who brings a partial fulfillment of the promise of global blessing. When all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph and the people acknowledged that he had saved their lives. Chapter 47, verse 25. Israel was meant to be a blessing to the world by being a light to the nations, as we read later. But, of course, they failed miserably. Solomon era brought some blessing to the nations, for we read that all the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. But it was short-lived. It ended in tragedy. However, it became a picture that prophets and psalmists used to look for the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise through an ideal Israelite figure, the servant of the Lord, who is also associated with the ideal Davidic king. I can't give you all the references. If you want them, I'll give them to you later. The New Testament, of course, sees the promises fulfilled in the new good news concerning Messiah, proclaimed as the light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of his people Israel. The global promise is actually quoted by Peter to indicate that it is realized in the preaching of the gospel, Acts chapter 3, verses 25 and 26. Jesus said, indeed, that he, that salvation is of the Jews, and he pointed people to himself as the Messiah. He also claimed that Abram rejoiced to see his day and saw it and was glad. Jesus the Jew, the son of Abraham, is the salvation that God has provided for humanity. He is the saviour, not just of Jewish people, but as the Samaritans confess, he is the world's saviour. The promise God made in Eden as he pronounced judgment on the snake is realised in Jesus' atoning death and resurrection. 
Jesus saw his sacrificial death in terms of judgment on this world. The occasion when the prince of this world would be cast out, enabling Greeks and people of all nations to be drawn to the Savior. Well, all this goes to show that the New Testament is not, first, is not forcing an interpretation onto the Abrahamic material that is not already present in Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament. There is at best but a partial fulfillment in the Old Testament. And as Williamson points out, while the core aspects of the Abrahamic promise have attained some degree of realization with the Old Testament, a more complete fulfillment of each promissory element is nevertheless anticipated. Although the New Testament doesn't, does spiritualize the promises, the physical aspects are not ignored, but are, as Williamson argues, incorporated within the spiritual. Limitless seed includes both Abram's physical descendants, the nation of Israel, and his spiritual descendants, namely God's elect from all nations united in the seed of Abram, Jesus the Messiah. Physical territory includes both the historical inheritance of the land of Canaan and the eschatological inheritance of the new earth. Universal recognition symbolized and anticipated in the lives of Abram and Joseph and David and Solomon come to full realization in Jesus, who is the royal seed, who overcame the old snake to bring about global blessing on a massive scale and that is to be a true, truly eternal in the new creation. Thank you for... Uh, allowing me to finish. <laughs>